our existing laws just don't keep up with where um, predominantly cryptocurrency transactions are taking us, but also things that are very particular to decentralized models of governance and particularly hard forks, um, the, the laws just aren't equipped to properly analyze the legal and tax implications of a hard fork. And this goes into the debate of code is law versus code as law. That is Joni Perovich, and this is episode 30 of the Blockchain Pro podcast. Hello and welcome to the 30th episode of the Blockchain Pro podcast. I'm Adriana Bahari, and today's guest is Joni Perovich. Joni is a Melbourne-based lawyer who specializes in tax and has a passion for helping small businesses cut through red tape in their journey to success. When I first approached Joni for this interview, she was about to give birth to her second child. Fast forward a couple of months, we did this whole interview while she nursed her newborn daughter, which means our chat is permeated by wonderful new baby sounds in the background. Let's get to know Joni. Hi, Joni. Hi, Adriana. How are you? I'm all right. How are you doing? I'm, I'm going well, considering we've been in lockdown now for a few months and, and we've got a few weeks ahead of us to go. And as you might hear, I've got a baby in the background. <laughs> I had a baby two months ago. Oh, that's a good time to have a baby. Yes, we we would have been in newborn lockdown anyway, so so we're not too much put out by by the measures at the moment. But um, in a weird sense, the the cryptocurrency markets and and also discussions about blockchain have increased in the last few months. So there's even more to keep up with whilst I'm on maternity leave. Oh, but that is nice that you can keep up with your conversations while you're still mothering. One thing doesn't impede on the other, right? Well, I, I try to keep up, but um, the the time taken up from parenting and, and settling a baby and a toddler, um, there's only so much sort of reading on the iPhone you can do while you're holding um, a, a newborn with a toddler climbing over you. So <laughs> I do some catch up reading in, in the brief time before bed, but um, I, I'm trying my best to keep up with everything. I'm sure it will all be fine and your kids are going to be better off with all this attention, I'm sure. Yeah, they're learning to be independent. So <laughs> hopefully that's a good skill for them. Oh, 100%. Um, okay, let's go back in time and talk about how did you choose your career path? Well, long story short, I grew up on a mango farm in Queensland and so was put to hard work from a very young age. And um, I've, I've always kind of had that work ethic instilled in me to, to just work hard with, with whatever I'm doing and um, but also being grown up in a family business, I've always tried to look for the most efficient way of doing things to, um, so that our family could finish the work as quickly as possible and as well as possible um, to obviously get the best price for the mangoes, mm -hmm. but so that we could 
have our own family time together or um, spend some time swimming in the pool. Um, it was very hot in Queensland. So uh, I guess I've always come from that background and I saw my parents work extremely hard, but they felt like they could never get ahead in life and with their finances. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I would hear them at night talking over the dinner table about how um, sometimes they would be able to pay their bills and especially for our education because they very, they very much valued giving their three girls a good education. So I've had that instilled in me and, and that kind of eventuated to um, wanting to study law, but, but wanting to uh, practice eventually in tax law because I wanted to get a practical understanding of what these tax laws actually were, why they were so hard and how they applied in practice so that one day I could just make it simple for people like my mum and dad who are working so hard um, to help them feel like they could get ahead by working hard um, is, as well as... That's a great goal. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm still working on it. So. <laughs> but um, but it's, it's kind of... That, that's why I started. And whenever I'm having a hard day or, you know, difficult um, concepts to get my head around, sometimes difficult clients, mm -hmm. um, you know, I just try to remember why I started and that usually helps get me through. So uh, I'm still in, in tax and, and I'm sort of blended tax with blockchain and digital assets now. And, and so the tax laws would change very regularly. And, and that was a lot of effort to keep up with. And, and blockchain and digital assets changes almost every few minutes. <laughs> so, um, I'm never bored, but, but um, you know, I'm, I'm in a career and, and I'm in a line of work that I am passionate about and I'm interested in, in pursuing really at the end of the day to just make it easier for people to engage with and understand. That's really good. I remember when I first saw you speak at um, Steve Valor's Blockchain 2020 event last year, I found that you were the most eloquent speaker I have ever seen. <laughs> and <laughs> Thank you. I think because your passion for this really comes through when you speak and it's so good to sit in an audience when you're hearing someone like that. So how did blockchain came into your life? Well, I, it's, it's funny actually, because cryptocurrency came into my life first. Um, yes. I, was, I was working at PwC in the international tax team. And in 2014, um, that's when the ATO started developing their guidance around cryptocurrencies, well, Bitcoin in particular. Mm -hmm. And the call out went out to the group to say, you know, who wants to learn about cryptocurrencies and, and you know, respond to the ATO guidance. Um, and help them prepare it at that time. And I, I looked into it, read a little bit about it, and, and just wasn't that interested. It, it really didn't pique my interest. And, um, and then it was about a year later, I had actually moved firms and I was more responsible for, um, you know, responding to market trends and, and what was going on in the world. And I read an article about how tax rules could be coded into these things called smart contracts and of course i had no idea what that meant nor you know the reference to blockchain so that's when my journey down the rabbit hole into blockchain began 
about about a year later and i i then made the connection that it that it was linked to that that old thing called bitcoin so i i feel like i'm more of a purist on the blockchain front um because that 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 article is actually what got me very much interested in this space mm -hmm. um learning about the potential of this technology to really um improve business networks and um and even personal transaction networks um and and the tax element i thought oh you beauty like i can code i can create standard functions and and set guidelines for how um tax can be calculated and automatically remitted to various regulators around the world and people don't have to worry about their taxes anymore and it and because there'll be a multitude more of of cryptocurrency transactions at least in my vision um you would only have to take a very very tiny clip um, of each transaction and not you know these large 30 percent or um, when we're talking about personal income taxes upwards of 40 percent tax rates um, to help pay for the social goods that our that our country and our states and, and local governments provide to us so i just thought you know what a neat package the this concept of smart contracts and how blockchain brings that to bear so so i've been trying to figure that out ever since then <laughs> and i'm still on the path <laughs> do you think that you know as we've seen this year governments have like ceased to rely on the tax that they collected to pay for things because they've they've just been printing money and printing money and printing money do you mm. think we're gonna get to a point where we won't have to pay tax anymore well i think um we'll we'll be discussing more concepts around universal basic income or, or ubi and so that's where um, the government the federal government pays a basically a minimum wage to all of its citizens um, for them to live Mm -hmm. and and because i mean universal basic income has been discussed mostly in the context of um the evolution of technology and when we don't have jobs to do because mm -hmm. the technology does it for us in in those kind of worst case scenario um uh, thought pieces that's where they're, they're discussing how we introduce the concept and also um fund a concept of this universal basic income so you know at some point in the future we'll get there um, but i think at this stage we are um, and you're seeing the federal government now look at um, these job maker programs to divert um, skills training to those areas where they think that there will be jobs in the future so we're yet to see a lot more details of those packages but um, one example of that is that there's going to be less funding diverted to arts degrees mm -hmm. and more towards the sciences. Mm -hmm. So um, the, the, there's questions around um, how correct this actually should be. But if you go back to it, it's taxpayer dollars that are funding the universities to deliver these education programs. So if you don't have a job at the end of the university degree then why should the taxpayer fund it 
So, and, and that's where like, it does come back to tax and tax policy. And it's not something that you can just learn for a couple of years and then say, this is what I recommend for the economy to come out in good stead. Um, you're constantly having to look at microeconomic and macroeconomic factors to figure out what might be the best tax policy settings um, to really have a prosperous nation and people that are in states of well-being rather than ill-being. <laughs> that makes sense. Um, do you think from what you've seen that the current tax policies for cryptocurrencies in Australia are going in the right direction? No, I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, I, I commend the efforts of the regulator, the Australian Taxation Office, for putting a lot of web guidance out there. Mm -hmm. um, and, and they're really doing what they're able to do within the powers that they currently have. Mm -hmm. They're applying our existing tax laws to what they see um, what they characterise cryptocurrency as, as property, mm -hmm. um, and then how how cryptocurrency transactions are fitting within existing laws. But a lot of the issues that I come into um, are that our existing laws just don't keep up with where um, predominantly cryptocurrency transactions are taking us, but also things that are very particular to decentralised models of governance, and particularly hard forks, um, the, the laws just aren't equipped to properly analyse the legal and tax implications of a hard fork. And this goes into the debate of code is law versus code as law. Um, and so I have, um, we're, we're getting to the stages of being able to lodge a test case at the mm -hmm. moment on the legal and tax treatment of the ETH Ethereum classic hard fork. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, our argument is, well, we obviously disagree with the ATO's view on, on hard forks, mm -hmm. which they call chain splits, as it relates to ETH, ETH Classic. And um, so over the passage of the next one or two years, hopefully you see the results of us bringing the arguments forward to say why we disagree with, with the current ATO view. Mm -hmm. And we're also keeping Treasury informed of the progress of this dispute so that they can see that um, the policy aspects need to be developed um, as well. And, and it's hard because we need to let the existing law run its course mm -hmm. almost to show in, in a judgment, in a legal judgment, that the law just doesn't go far enough. And um, in, in other areas of the law where um, the law just has, it, has seen to be wanting, you might see the, um, the judges that are making the decision, they might have reference to say, this is a matter for the legislature, you know, and that's where they're saying the policy really needs to be developed. So it's our hope that some of those comments are made to add some, some impetus, some inertia to, to um, have the government really prioritise putting um, proper policy frameworks around the legal and tax treatment of uh, both blockchain projects as well as cryptocurrency transactions. If you could, if you, if you, if someone said to you tomorrow, okay, you can make this policy, what would you do? Well, I, th <laughs> I think the one that would result in the most impact 
-hmm. would be um, saying that we can have some sort of personal use wallet election. Mm -hmm. So um, in, in its simplest form, you could elect a wallet or a couple of wallets where um, the crypto that's held within those wallets, any transactions made with those um, are not relevant for tax purposes. So you don't have to worry about tracking any crypto to crypto trades. Um, you know, you might be doing that for your own personal experimentation to learn and to get into what cryptocurrency is. And, and that then encourages curiosity about what the blockchain teams are actually building and why they're building it for. Mm -hmm. So I think if we had um, personal use wallets with kind of um, a, a value balance of no more than a thousand or a couple of thousand at any one time, I think you'd start getting more people interested mm -hmm. in, in learning about cryptocurrency because it's not going to create a tax headache from mm -hmm. doing so. Um, and so you're going to get experimentation with the network, you're going to get curiosity and you're going to get more people learning about uh, what this is and then what the potential is for markets, but as well as their own personal and business affairs. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the best thing that we can do for education and therefore adoption, which helps Australians and Australian businesses advance in what's going to be a, a increasingly global digital economy. Um, do you think the government still likes like the understanding of um, how this works and how having um, transactions that can be tracked and therefore, you know, instant tax? Um, Mm. I think they do. I, I think they've, they've just flooded with a number of priorities anyway. And then COVID has come along and mm -hmm. um, has rightly directed their attention to a number of health priorities. But COVID, um, if there is any silver lining to this, I think it's really um, giving us the opportunity to look at all of our business and government processes and realize how inefficient they are mm -hmm. how you know how clunky it is to have um different state and territory laws um and and versus sometimes as well a commonwealth or a federal set of laws so what what this is really prompting this health crisis is prompting is an efficiency review as to how we interact with each other at the government and the business levels and that and to figure out how we can harmonize those processes. And it's, it's kind of um, business transformation in the sense that you need to see where you can achieve harmony and common standards and, and understandings between each other before you can then codify that. And so I think that we're getting our house in order at the moment and, and we're closer to a path of harmonization, harmonizing our rules and laws so that we can do business more efficiently across states and territories. And, and by doing that, I think that that lays the groundwork for us to then um, be able to automate and codify and digitize processes. Um, the, an example being driver's licenses. Mm -hmm. They all are currently administered by um, the relevant state or territory authority. Um, and so that's, such an easy example that we could harmonize all of those laws have a uniform law um, and therefore digitize driver's licenses 
and um, think about that with reference to identity and self-sovereign identity and proper standards with privacy. And hey, presto, you've got your narrow case study that gives you a framework for rolling out um, a federal identity program that, that could be world leading. And we, we could use blockchain for that. Maybe we won't. But blockchain is a technology in the toolkit and we should give it consideration and, and why it's better or worse than other technologies. So now is the time to do that, I think. I think in that respect, the government is doing a little bit of a good job with the national blockchain roadmap. Yeah. <laughs> and oh, it's great. I, and, I, and the work that Chloe is doing to lead that um, and yourself on the steering committee, we've got passionate people that have come together that are helping to identify these sorts of opportunities around our country. And, it, and it's like, um, I think I was saying to you before with our Premier Daniel Andrews giving us the five steps roadmap out of lockdown, mm -hmm. we know what, what we're going to have to do to reach step, to come out of step one and reach step two. And the roadmap um, the blockchain roadmap does this at a very high level mm -hmm. and I'm so excited to see the reports from each of the working groups because what I'm excited about is that the working groups will give us hopefully <laughs> more of those granular steps to say hey um, you know of the credentials working group maybe they'll focus on the university credentials first and and these are the five steps that we need to see um, it being secure and and adopted and applauded in the university sector. And then we can roll it out across other, um, you know, TAFEs, other micro-credential providers. And, and that gives us a rolling start to our adoption of um, more efficient processes backed by better technology. Hopefully that's what we'll achieve. Um, yeah. Everyone <laughs> no is pressure. working hard to try and make <laughs> <Yeah>. that happen. <laughs> <laughs> no, we appreciate all your hard work, Adriana. Um, okay, let me switch gears a bit. How do you explain blockchain to those of you, or do you ever have to, to those of you in your life that, you know, are not very tech savvy? <laughs> well, um, if I could jump to cryptocurrency first, um, because over the weekend it was Father's Day, and um, so I had my partner and his son, uh, who's 16 years old, uh, I was, you know, they both wanted to, to learn about cryptocurrency. And I set, my, I set my partner up um, through a regulated exchange and the son, um, who's not yet 18, through an un, what, what most people would call an unregulated exchange. So no KYC. Okay. And, um, and it was so fascinating because seeing their questions you know they're coming to it pretty fresh um and and the the son he had his account set up and he was trading basically within a couple of minutes and the my partner in the regulated exchange it took a couple of hours to get through <laughs> all of the security and and that just goes to user experience as to you know the regulation is so important to protect consumers but um but it's really not user-friendly at the moment. And, and so nor is the unregulated exchange. The Sun, he found it really difficult to understand what the charts were saying to him, how to trade in pairs, you know, um, what, what even the price of the cryptocurrency was when he was trading it. 
Um, so then we set him up with Coin Tracker, and and anyway, we got to the end of it, and he said, Joni, if I didn't have you there, I would have no idea how to even start do, learning about cryptocurrency and and how to engage with it. And I think that cryptocurrency is even easier to understand than blockchain technology. So one hundred percent, yeah. <laughs> And, um, and so that was a little experiment, which was so insightful over the weekend. And, um, and so what I have said to my parents and, you know, family and friends in the past about blockchain is at its most simple, it's a business improvement software that doesn't rely on one organization to control things. So then they say, but how, you know, how do I know that I can't, uh, that my transaction is going to go through or if something goes wrong, I want to complain to someone. Um, and then you've got to get into the nitty gritty details about why you can't make mistakes in putting addresses in mm -hmm. um, that you've got a network of nodes all around the world that are um, contributing to, to validating the transactions on a network. Um, and you can't easily identify any one of them to, to correct your mistake. And if you do, that's not easy. So I just tried to um, talk about it in the practical as to what it means for them in engaging with, with the, block, the actual blockchain technology. Mm -hmm. um, and to be honest, I, of the family and friends, I haven't um, been able to convert any of them to um, sort of play in the blockchain and digital assets space as I do. They often go back, um, you know, and they'll continue their teaching job um, or medical role, they're basically in fields other than um, law or accounting. Mm -hmm. And so they've, they've got enough of a preoccupation with their existing roles and the pressures of those roles um, that they don't see scope or time um, to learn about, to learn more about blockchain and cryptocurrency. Mm -hmm. And so as a lawyer, I've had to learn, as a lawyer and an accountant, I've had to learn more of the details of, of the technology as well as the applications of technology to properly advise on it. But um, the business case and the personal case still isn't quite there for, you know, how is it going to make a teaching job easier or better for the students or how is it going to be better in medicine? And I know we've got particular blockchains that solve issues in each of those spaces, but they haven't made it to the, you know, the common everyday teacher yet. It needs um, to so, be part of making their life simpler first. That's right. And, and so explaining what blockchain is, um, it, it kind of helps them understand a little bit more about it, but I don't see that next step of curiosity to learn how it will impact their job yet because um, those little snippets and tidbits like that article I read four or five years ago, they're not reaching their way to the main media um, or in the teaching journals or the medical journals yet. I think Bitcoin does. Um, mm. when, when people start learning about that and what's behind it, uh, it makes sense to some people. Uh, people yeah. like me who grew yeah. up in Brazil, for example, and you know where governments aren't so, so stable. That's right. Yeah. So, but yes, um, everything else, it, it, it's very overwhelming at first. Yeah. Well, and, and that's right. Like we're lucky. We're very lucky in Australia to have a relatively stable Australian dollar. 
and um, one of the questions over the weekend from the sun was um, you know if I'm doing well on one cryptocurrency but I'm on this unregulated exchange so I can only go crypto to crypto how do I sort of cash out and and keep my profits and I had been telling him about the difference between um, traditional cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin versus others like stable coins. Mm-hmm. And he said, would I put it into a Bitcoin or a stable coin? <laughs> and, <laughs> and so, yeah. And, and so um, it made me think, how, how would you think about your transactions if you couldn't go back to a stable fiat currency? And I know that stable coins are pegged. A lot of them are pegged to our fiat currencies, but, um, imagining that kind of world, it also provoked some, some further thoughts in my head about from a policy aspect, um, how could we be thinking about frameworks that not only suit the current environment where we've got fiat currencies, where monetary policy is, is, is managed by our, our reserve banks, our Reserve Bank of Australia, but, but how would we also um, see frameworks that suit where there are no fiat currencies at all. And this, and this thought actually um, is becoming more important to me because when the laws were originally created, um, they were created with just an entity or a legal person in mind. And now of course, with blockchain, we've got the advent of decentralization, which causes a lot of problems for um, legal rights and responsibilities. And, and enforcing those. And so I think decentralization is, is, the, is a current challenge that we need to deal with, but the lack of fiat currencies potentially, you know, in the next few decades, um, that's another thing that our policy frameworks should be flexible enough to adapt with and, and give consumers confidence and reliability to transact with these networks. Sorry if I'm throwing out too many. No, no, I'm just, I'm just thinking about what you just said. I think that is a really big challenge. And I can mm. see uh, in a world where people transact more, let's use Bitcoin as an example, because it's the most trusted um, mm. crypto, um, the one with the largest network, the one I like the best. But um, mm. in a world where you can get paid in Bitcoin, you can transact and buy your groceries and everything and pay for your services in bitcoin yeah why would you even need a a fiat um on an off ramp you don't well and and i was fascinated to see crypto savings accounts um so nexo is one of the big ones at the moment and and banks are going to be in big trouble because they they're just not transparent in the way that these crypto savings accounts are i mean you deposit your crypto as collateral. You can get an instant credit line. Um, for what collateral I have deposited, I can earn up to 5% interest, which is much greater than our current interest rates for mm. depositing fiat with our traditional banks. And then um, on my credit line, if I attach a credit card and spend my Bitcoin with that credit card, I get rewarded for two, to the value of something like 2% of the value of those transactions. And, and I mean, what bank is giving you that kind of interest rate return or rewards on your credit card? And the other thing was um, the transparency of, of the interest that you do earn, I think relates to um, the credit line that you've got um, running at any one time. So you've got transparency 
in interest received versus interest paid margins, which is the secret source of our traditional banks right now and, and really how they're um, able to make so much money, which they do generally give back by way of dividend to their shareholders. But um, these are the kind of structural issues that, you know, this, these crypto savings accounts, if they take off, it just really challenges um, traditional banks in, in how they're going to be competitive and keep up with those kinds of offers which is why we need to teach Australians how to engage with this kind of stuff so that they're included in the digital economy and the better opportunities that that presents for them. I agree. It's a big challenge and it's not a surprise that the banking industry is, are the ones being challenged first. Cause I think that's, that, that, mm. that was in the design. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> it is. And, and it both excites me and worries me. You know, I, 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 I think so much about how um, we can best get Australians up to speed with this technology to make the best of it so that we're not left behind. Because it is, I mean, you, you're in this world, it just emerges at, at a cracking pace. And, um, and we've got to be doing our best to, to keep up with it at a policy level. Um, and to make it as easy as possible for people to engage with. So, I think making it easy is the, the, the step that we need to work on as well. It, it, it is very clunky and still hard to mm. um, get into this world. So hopefully in the next few years, we're gonna see some developments in that area. And then once it's easier for people to play with and to understand, then you, know, you have um, your work cut out for you, right? And mm. then you have to look at the policies and how the relationship of the people playing with it and the government behind it um, work. And, and it's good that things are like developing side by side. Mm. We don't have lots of people playing with it. Whilst we don't have the, fr the framework for this relationship to happen, otherwise, you, you just get ahead of the time and, and we have problems like we've had in the past with, you know, how the government has, um, as you mentioned before, how the government has um, ruled Narrowed. on some things that could have been, could have, could have been done better. That's right. Yeah. But I think the great thing about the blockchain community in Australia, but also in other places is that we're really connected um, so it's probably one of the great ironies that, you know, blockchain brought us decentralization, but it also helps with connecting communities. And, and I've certainly found that um, for my whole time working and, and sort of spending time in this industry, um, we're all connected. And, and those of us that, that have spent the time to understand it, uh, we generally are passionate about it. And, um, and so unlike other policy development areas, I'm yet to see another issue um, garner so much community interest for people to volunteer their time to contribute to to re development of reports um, and then policy recommendations. I mean, in other circles, generally consulting fees would be paid for people to do the research and come up with these things. But as a community, we're volunteering a lot of time to move the dial forward which is a real, very commendable, I think. 
I think uh, one of our, it's a great aspect of decentralization, like decentralization in the network is it's about security and having data redundancy. So things don't get changed without permission. Right. And, but mm. in a, in a way it creates this community where people are interested because they, they see that they have a key role to play. Mm. That's right. I love that aspect uh, of, um, Bitcoin blockchain and all the other stuff. All right. Um, we, we're getting to the pointy end. <laughs> <laughs> it goes so fast. Uh, it does. Um, how do you have any advice for the kids out there studying law or thinking about study law, studying law? Um, how do they go about reconciling, you know, their current law studies with a little blockchain, Bitcoin, crypto flavor? Well, I encourage them, you know, it doesn't have to cost money. There's so many clips out there on YouTube now, so many articles, just start reading. And we're, a lot of us are contained to our own homes. So I would usually recommend to um, go to events, you know, and find the people that are working and speaking about these issues and, and talk to them and get to know them because that's a natural network that will help um, their progression through the law to, you know, get good working experience opportunities and then ultimately jobs or, or contract positions where they're working on um, digital law or emerging, emerging technology legal issues. So I'd encourage them just to start, just start reading about it, um, learning about it. And that then triggers the curiosity mm -hmm. um, to learn more if they can, if it links to something that's relevant to them and their passions. And once, I, I think passion is always um, a good substitute for um, the things that might otherwise get, get in our way. So there's nepotism, there's, um, you know, so those that already have family generations in the law will look out for their sons and daughters that, then make it into the law. And, and there's so many law graduates right now and accounting graduates looking for jobs. Um, and they're trying to make themselves um, look more attractive than the others. And, and despite um, the, the things that are working against them. So like pre-promised positions. And, and so I think when you show that you've got passion about an area and you connect with a team that is working on those issues, that I can tell you, I get at least five requests through LinkedIn every week from students wanting to chat with me and learn how I made it to being a blockchain and digital assets lawyer. And it's through a lot of um, volunteer hours, learn, learning, talking to people, the hard earned knowledge that's, that wasn't put together in a course for me and not for you either mm -hmm. back then. And so I'd say, um, money shouldn't stop you from learning and when you do find yourself privileged enough to have some spare cash to put on on a course look at the micro credentials perhaps do a postgraduate in digital law um, at one of the universities um, or building blockchain uh, sorry designing blockchain businesses there's a couple of universities that offer those sorts of micro credentials now and and so spend your cash wisely um, on how it will advance your passion. And I think eventually your passion will connect with the career opportunities. And um, what I've found now is that 
you know, I really don't feel like I'm working because I enjoy it so much and I know that I'm contributing to, um, you know, the policy development to, like I said to you at the very beginning, ultimately make things simpler for, for people who are working hard to get ahead in life. That is such a good purpose to have. <laughs> and yes, when you enjoy your work, you don't work. It's, yeah. <laughs> work is such a pleasure. Someone... <laughs> which, is, which is why I'm um, chatting to you while I'm you know, trying to settle my baby. And, and so <laughs> th there's always a juggle and there's always a trade-off. And, and I think that if you enjoy it, you won't resent that juggle and it won't be a toll on you and, and you'll take the time out. Um, for your own well-being when you need to, um, to exercise or to see friends. So you can moderate yourself um, as well, but just do what you're passionate about would be my advice to, to those budding students coming into the workforce. <laughs> That's great advice. Uh, and your baby, she is so good. We <laughs> hardly heard any peeps out of her. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we, we are coming up to time. So thank you so much for, for having me on the show, Adriana. I really thank appreciate you. everything thank you're you. doing. Thank you for taking the time and, you know, um, taking the time from your kids, uh, even though she's there with you. But you know, <laughs> <laughs> I really appreciate it. That was a great conversation. No worries. My pleasure. Thank you. And that was the wonderful Johnny Pirovich. If you have a question, comment, or want to reach out to Joni, you can follow the links that I've put in the description for you. Remember to like and share this episode with your mates. And if you have been enjoying these chats, please take a couple of minutes to write a review. They really help us get more visibility and you will get my eternal gratitude. That's all for me today. Hope you enjoyed the show. Stay safe and I will see you at the next vlog. Bye.